Welcome to this week's Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Kate Bede and Emma Adjumang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and David Little, Chief Executive of Ipso Facto Investor. This summer marks 10 years since the start of the financial crisis, one of the most turbulent events ever experienced by financial markets. Markets have since made a strong recovery, and wholesale change has been implemented in banks, which helped cause the crisis. But not everyone is persuaded that this is enough to prevent another similar event. Kate, why is this? Uh, Well, so Alex Brazier, who's a member of the Financial Policy Committee for the Bank of England, said in a speech uh, last month that he's very worried about lenders entering into a spiral of complacency what he's called it. So he's worried about this big increase that we're seeing in consumer and household debt. So consumer credit has been going very rapidly. And in the past year, outstanding car loans, credit card balance transfer and personal loans have increased by 10%, which is quite hefty, um, while household incomes have only risen by 1.5%. And the concern here that he was addressing is that we've had this period of very low interest rates, which has meant a period of very cheap borrowing. Um, And so that's increased the amount of debt in the system. But the worry is that if rates go up and the cost of servicing that debt rises, we might be left with some big problems. Okay, I mean, that sounds rather serious. So do many others share Alex Brazier's concerns? Uh, Well, Mark Carney, Governor of the Bank of England, does share those concerns. He has talked about it as well recently. Um, But markets certainly are not sharing those concerns. Um, This month, we've we've seen markets shoot up again to, to new highs, particularly the U.S., uh, where many of the indices over there have, have broken new records over July um, and emerging markets as well have, have been soaring. OK, so what has been driving these US indices so high? Uh, well, in a word, it's technology, and I think we've spoken about this recently, but the, the FANG stock have, have really shot the lights out recently. We've had this very bumper earnings round in the US um, for tech stocks, and many of those FANGs, have beaten analyst expectations. So we've seen some real fundamental growth in some of their businesses, particularly Netflix increasing subscribers by a huge amount. Um, and so those kind of, so there's expectation beating earnings and also this kind of continued, I guess, I don't know if you would call it hype. There is clearly some hype uh, surrounding these tech stocks is really shooting those indices higher. Okay, and is it just US indices that have been pushed up by tech shares? No, interestingly, we, we're seeing this massive kind of tech surge in emerging markets um, where it's stocks like Baidu and Tencent, um, kind of Chinese internet giants, um, pushing up those indices too. And emerging markets have been have been performing incredibly strongly on the back of this tech surge there too. Okay, so um, yeah, quite, 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 quite a lot going on. Um, David, do you think that there's a real risk that there might be a repeat of a financial crisis in view of, let's say, the UK and other debt situations? Um, there's certainly a potential problem with too much consumer debt, but I think that it is unlikely there will be a repeat of the financial crisis, although you can never say never. But essentially that crisis was a liquidity crisis for banks in the first place, and banks are considerably better capitalised and in particular have more liquidity with central banks than they did in 2007. Just to take one example, I was looking at Barclays, which reported results the other day, and although it survived the financial crisis, it came quite close to going under at that point. But it's in much better financial shape today. 
So, for example, the ratio of its debt to equity was 6.4 times in June 2007. That's incredibly highly geared. Ten years later, it has reduced to 1.8 times. Still quite highly geared, but nothing like it was. And the amount of cash held with central banks was only 5.8 billion in 2007. Now it is 146 billion. But that's not to say the banks are out of the woods yet at all. If we do get an economic recession, either because of falling employment and or rising interest rates, then a lot of consumers are quite exposed in terms of debt, as we have heard, and therefore so are banks. So a recession over the next few years would probably do a lot of damage. And of course, there is uh, Brexit on the horizon as well. Okay, um, some um, concerns. Now, we were obviously talking about high market valuations too. So other than these things we've mentioned, would you say there are any other key investment risks on top of all this? Well, as you say, the, the high valuations are a concern. Um, but I suppose the key investment risks are the same as they have been for some time. We're now eight years or so into an economic recovery. But interest rates remain stuck at historically very low levels. The U.S. Treasury 10-year yield has gone up a bit since last year, but it's still only 2.24%. So the key risks are that, on the one hand, interest rates normalize too quickly and send equity markets into a panicky collapse, thereby also affecting the real economy and possibly sparking a recession. On the other hand, if we are stuck with this fairly anemic economic growth, then will this be sufficient for consumers to pay off their debts and provide resources to sort out the kind of political problems we keep hearing about. It's a potentially very fragile position. With populism, while it may have stilled in Europe, um, it's certainly not quite dead. And President Trump, of course, remains a dangerously loose cannon in the world, not short of geopolitical mm. issues. But aside from all this, as we've heard with tech, the pace of disruption to established industries appears to be hotting up, although some of this is pure hype but it does make sector allocation more than usually fraught. Yeah, I mean, certainly the world seems like a very dangerous place, and um, in particular for investors. Um, so is there anything they can do to mitigate their portfolios against all these risks, and I think all these uncertainties as well? Yes, um, I guess more than ever, be well diversified across sectors, geography and asset classes, and don't ignore cash as an investment even if real returns are non-existent at the moment. I think, in particular, be, uh, at the moment, be aware of currency risk. Sterling has depreciated by 18% since 2015. This has been great for UK investors in international assets, but bear in mind this could reverse. And the fate of the dollar is probably going to be key. Um, and some a- allocation to dollar, to dollar assets is probably desirable. Okay. Kate, um, we're talking about indices looking high in July, month that's just passed. So turning back to that period, um, which funds did particularly well? Um, North America and tech in um, stocks seemed to do well. So was this reflected among the fund top performers or, you know, what, what, what other funds uh, were looking good? Well, in fact, we've had a a host of Latin America and Brazil funds, which have been doing really well. So interestingly, some of that is obviously due to this emerging market surge we're seeing. But a lot of this is due to the political situation in Brazil. So Brazil, it's been a pretty turbulent time over the past two years. Firstly, we had the impeachment and then ousting of former President Dilma Rousseff uh, last year, who was accused of corruption and thrown out of office. 
She was replaced by Michael Tima, who has now also been accused of corruption. <laughs> and then recently it looked like there was the potential of old President Luis Inacio Lula de Silva returning to power. But just as we thought that might happen, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison for corruption and money laundering. So um, obviously jail is a place <laughs> to be uh, in, in Brazil. Brazil, I don't know. So, right. uh, so yeah. markets have actually breathed a bit of a sigh of relief about the about the fact that um, de Silva is not coming back to office and it looks like Tima is, is staying in power. So in fact, funds um, at the top of the pile include things like HSBC, JF uh, Brazil Equity, JP Morgan Brazil Equity, uh, Neptune, Latin America. Um, and then also best performing open-ended fund sector was China, Greater China, um, Global Emerging Markets close behind. Okay. Now, which funds didn't have such a good July? Well, one fund not having a good month was actually Woodford Equity Income, uh, which lost 2.5%. So it was a bad month for, for Woodford uh, because three of the largest positions in his fund fell sharply for different reasons. Um, we had AstraZeneca, who were uh, disappointed with their latest drug trial. Uh, Imperial Brands was hit uh, when the US Food and Drug Administration decided to reduce the amount of nicotine in cigarettes. And we also had Provident Financial doing pretty badly after a disappointing um, first half profits. Okay. Um, David, um, as Kate said, Latin American and Brazil funds seem to be doing really well. So does that mean it's a good time to invest in them? Well, they certainly have had a fair following wind recently, despite the high-profile political issues in Brazil that we heard about, and also in Mexico, in fact. But basically, valuations hit pretty low levels last year. Brazil has underperformed most other emerging markets, and even more so developed markets over five years. Recent dollar weakness has helped those markets, and to some extent, in terms of his dealings with Latin America, and particularly Mexico, President Trump's bark has so far been rather worse than his bite. And some may consider a long-term positive, in any case, for Mexico to be weaned off its American habit, so to speak. The recovery in oil and commodity prices has also helped Latin American commodity exporters. Is now the right time? To me, it's still not that attractive a risk-reward compared to, say, investing in Asia. Okay, well, on that note, then, um, Kate actually mentioned that um, single-country China funds had done well, so would they be a good option? Well, I do like the Chinese investment trusts, closed-end funds, Fidelity Special Situations at J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, sorry, J.P. Morgan Chinese. Um, Chinese economic growth is still seemingly defying the pundits. Um, On the whole, though, I would favour a broader general Asian fund like Schroeder Asia-Pacific, or a general emerging markets fund like J.P. Morgan Emerging Markets. I just don't think you want too much country-specific risk at the moment, although it is true that the rest of Asia, with the possible exception of India, is unlikely to prosper if China does not also prosper. Okay, now turning to people who haven't had such a good time lately, CF Woodford Equity Income Fund um, didn't do very well at all in July. Does that mean investors should reconsider investing on it? in it? Well, as Kate said, it's been a bit of a perfect storm with three of the largest holdings being hit so hard. But I wouldn't necessarily be selling in the short term. Uh, these stocks may well bounce back, and we've already seen Astra and Imperial uh, recover somewhat. Um, and if uh, Woodford has conviction, he may have been picking up these stocks at cheaper values. And he certainly can't knock his long-term record. Certainly, 
those who've been in the fund for three years have still outperformed. I do have a slight concern that here and in his other funds, he has a number of quite labour-intensive, unquoted and small healthcare tech stocks, uh, as well as running his own business. And whilst I'm sure he has a good team around him, uh, does this mean his bread and butter suffers a little bit? But the big call for Woodford, I guess, or for the Woodford Equity Income Fund, is about the UK post-Brexit. He has been quite voluble about the attractions of UK domestic stocks on valuation grounds. Um, and I'm, although I think there is something to this, I wouldn't go quite long as far as he does. But as long as investors are holding the fund as part of a well-diversified portfolio, then I certainly wouldn't panic at this stage. OK, and maybe we should add for the long term because they're equity investments. Indeed. Yeah. OK, thank you, David. And you can see Kate's full roundup of July's winning funds in this week's magazine and the website. Now, sticking with the subject of poorly performing funds, wealth manager Tilney Group has released the latest instalment of its twice-yearly report on underperforming funds, known as Spot the Dog. Emma, you've been leafing through this report. What were some of the key findings? Well, Leonora, the report identified 34 so-called dog funds, poorly performing funds that have consistently underperformed their benchmark for the last three years. And in total, these funds had £7.6 billion of assets under management. However, since the last time this report was published six months ago, um, the number of dog fans has actually fallen by seven funds, which represents a 13% decline, which is some good news. And the number of investor, the amount of investor money that's been held in these dog funds has also declined by one billion since the report was last published. Okay. Um, how does Tilly come up with its list of dog funds? I mean, what 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 is a dog fund? Obviously, it's one well, a fund that doesn't do well. But what yeah. you know, what do they mean by that? Well, the first thing they do is to identify all the funds that have failed to beat their benchmarks for the three consecutive twelve-month periods. And then to really find the the very worst of the worst, as they put it, they pick out those that have underperformed their benchmark by 5% or more over the entire three-year period. So that's how they do it. Okay, so it's quite a yeah rigorous approach. Mm. Right, now turning to the uh, 34 villains, um, <laughs> which were some of the funds that um, showed up on this list? Half of them were actually, um, so 17 in total, were within the global equity or global equity income sectors. And examples include Neptune Global Income and Aberdeen World Equity Income, both of which consistently underperformed their benchmarks by more than 20% over the three-year period. Um, and there are a few reasons for why global equity seemed to be you know, one of the worst performing areas. Um, many of these funds have a income focus of the funds that the dog funds that Tilney identified. And with the US being quite a low yielding market, um, some of the managers in these funds have been avoiding that area. But as we know, as we've been talking about, the US has been surging ahead. And it's the main part of the benchmark, which were benchmarked against. Exactly. So, okay. so that's yeah. one of the reasons that they've underperformed it. Um, some of the managers in this space have been avoiding the US because of fears about how expensive valuations are. And that's, as you say, um, the fact that the US makes up such a large portion of a benchmark means that they've also underperformed. OK, benchmark being MSCI World Index. OK. All right. Well, well bearing all this in mind, um, does that mean investors should look at this list and run out and sell the funds? Not necessarily. Um, there's reason. There's several reasons for this. I mean, one of it, which is that a fund 
can underperform for sometimes quite a long time, particularly if the investing style is out of favour with the market. And we've seen this with value style funds, um, which for a long time haven't been doing well. Last year, they sort of came back a little bit, but now growth has kind of overtaken again. Mm. Um, so that's one reason that, you know, might, you know, if you're happy with that, you might want to stick with these funds. Um, also, looking over a three-year period may not be a long enough time to assess how well the fund is going to perform over the long term. Generally, five years is the minimum that investors should consider holding the fund from. Okay. Um, David, what do you make of all these global equity funds underperforming their benchmarks? How big an issue do you think lack of US exposure is? Well, it's uh, likely to be one of a number of issues, I guess, um, as well as stock selection within the US. UK fund managers have generally not done that well in US equities over a, a long period of time. And obviously, as we we're talking about earlier, with with tech stocks, or at least some of them being uh, seen as very overvalued, but having performed very well, uh, a lot of these funds will probably have been underweight, uh, those stocks. Um, but actually, um, over the three-year period we're talking about, to 30th of June, um, I think the U.S. performed more or less in line with Japan, for example, and uh, underperformed some of the European markets. Um, so I don't think the issue is just lack of U.S. exposure. As, as we've said, uh, it may be the income mandates that are, are partly causing this um, underperformance. Um, and uh, perhaps um, that has caused some funds to bias towards the UK more than um, the benchmark uh, would would have you have exposure in in local uh, in the local market. Okay, now there were obviously a large number of consistently un- underperforming global equities funds, but would it be fair to say that these seventeen funds actually came from? two sectors rather than one sector and also that just taking one of these sectors the global sector is actually one of the largest fund sector in the IA universe with over 250 funds in it meaning that it's likely to throw up a greater number of underperformers than a smaller fund sector. Uh, Yes I think that's right Um, and also I think you know, the, there's there's a question about whether the the benchmark being used here is the right benchmark for all these uh, global funds, for example, which uh, might be more fairly split into global and global equity income. Um, but certainly, if you have a bigger sector, it's likely to throw up a larger number of of, uh, of losers. But it is rather striking that the um, um, overall. Uh, the sector average seems to have underperformed the benchmark quite markedly over these particular three years. Okay. What do you think investors should do about underperforming funds? I mean, Emma said you shouldn't automatically sell. Um, Do you think that's right? Yes, um, absolutely. I wouldn't automatically sell an underperforming fund. Uh, In fact, in some ways, quite the reverse. My instinct is to be attracted to it. Um, But one needs to understand the reason for underperformance. And this is not always obvious. One of the reasons why at Ipso Facto Investor we tend to prefer closed-end funds is that there is, at least in theory, an independent board of directors monitoring performance. They can both be supportive of an underperforming manager if they think it is warranted, 
but also act to change direction if they can't see the likelihood of improvement. Now, this is maybe a slightly different situation with open-ended funds, which may be driven by marketing concerns uh, more than um, investment performance over the long term. Okay, so how long would you give a poorly performing fund to improve its performance? I don't think there's a, a one right answer to that. The, I think the most important thing is to understand the reasons for underperformance. That is a question of judgment as to whether you think the situation may change round. For example, if there's been a style bias towards value investing, which has generally uh, underperformed for a while now, um, you know, how likely is that going to be to turn, turn around in the future? I mean, all studies suggest that over the very long term, value does outperform. Um, so if we can put down underperformance to that kind of factor, then, um, you know, it, it's possible to give a reasonable period of time for the, for the fund to turn around. Of course, if stock selection is just pure poor, um, then um, that needs to be recognised and, and you need to exit the fund. OK, thank you, David. Some really helpful points. This week's portfolio clinic features a reader in his early 50s who's sick of trailing into the office on a daily basis, so wants to quit his job and do something more fulfilling, albeit less well-paid or at least less secure. David, you've reviewed this reader's case, but thinking about the situation more widely, what are the key things you should consider before quitting a job which pays a regular salary? Be cautious, I would say. Um, Seriously, you do need to do a complete audit of your circumstances in terms of assets and liabilities and loans, etc. And think about what your lifestyle requirements are and always overestimate your likely expenditure and underestimate your income. Ideally, do a cash flow forecast, leaving plenty of margin for error. I mean, flippantly, one might also say to make sure that your partner, if they have not been in regular employment, is happy to have you at home for rather more time. (laughs) But seriously, it's not just about money. Having a plan for how to spend your time is important. And if if you have plans to do charity work or set up your own business, then all to the good. But also remember, hobbies, travel or starting your own business can all usually cost money. Okay. Now, this reader is particularly interested in getting his portfolio to generate an income. Is a high-yielding portfolio the best option for supplementing or replacing a salary? Well, I suppose an alternative would be to have a growth portfolio and sell down the assets as and when needed. And there may be tax advantages to doing this. But to my mind, this is a more risky approach since growth from an equity portfolio is by no means guaranteed. Nor, of course, is income, but it's more likely that funds will be able to meet an income objective rather than a growth one. Okay. Now, this reader's portfolio is largely invested in equity funds. Um, Do you think it's a good idea, considering his situation? Well, ideally, if funds are going to be needed to provide an income within five years, then one would start reducing the equity component to invest in something less volatile. Unfortunately, in current circumstances, with cash interest rates so low and bonds likely to be subject to considerable price volatility themselves, that may not be the most sensible option. Hence, we would suggest moving the portfolio gradually towards higher-yielding equities so that it's better positioned by the time the income is required. But that's not to say the portfolio should not include other asset classes as well. 
Okay, and what other asset classes do you have in mind? Well, I think looking forward, um, rather than an asset class, um, one option is to look at uh, taking at least part of the pension assets in the form of an annuity. Although these have had a bad reputation because of poor value in the past, presuming that, in, presuming that interest rates do rise over the next few years, some portion of the pension assets could be used to buy this guaranteed income stream. Having this security in the same way as uh, perhaps a, a final salary pension allows other assets to be invested in a more risky fashion, giving better prospects for growth and achieving high, higher real income levels over the long term. Okay. I would just say as well, I mean, um, certainly you, you do want to include some exposure to bonds and other high-yielding high investments. Yes. I mean, the reader actually expressed a concern that he didn't have enough in bonds. Um, I mean, would you agree with him? Well, I think if you looked at the underlying um, investments, there's perhaps slightly more in bonds than may have been apparent. I think about uh, our analysis suggested about 10 percent. Um, I think the the position when you're looking forward is um, bonds are, are unfortunately um, very highly valued um, at the moment, and uh, because of low interest rates, and therefore are, are subject to considerable price volatility. So um, I would be waiting to up the bond exposure. Um, except perhaps by a little over the short term. But uh, over the long term, hopefully interest rates rise and you can get better value from bonds in a few years' time. Okay. Now, um, other than his um, equity bias, um, this reader's portfolio is mostly evenly spread across his different holdings. But one fund, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, accounts for 20% of his assets. Is that too much to have in one fund? Generally, I would say yes, it is too much to have in one fund. I think um, it is definitely in this situation too much where Scottish mortgage is low yielding when the reader is looking for income in the future. Um, it has had a tremendous perfor- performance behind it. So now is a good time to lock in some profits. And it does have a very concentrated portfolio. So it is subject to more than average equity risk. That's not to say sell down the whole holding, but reduce the exposure substantially, yes, I would think that's the right thing to do. Okay. Now, he actually has even more in his workplace pension fund, 25%. Why aren't you so concerned about him having a quarter of his assets in in this particular uh, fund? Um, well, I, I think this is, this is an okay fund to hold, uh, looking at the portfolio as a whole. Uh, because this is a workplace pension, we assume the charges are low, and this is a cheap way of generally getting equity exposure. Uh, which, um, and because it's a tracker fund, it will perform more or less in line with the market, rather than running the risk of large underperformance, as you, as you can get from an actively managed fund. It also happens that looking at the whole portfolio, the rest of the portfolio is quite light in UK equity exposure, and this tracker has 50% in the UK, and thus is a convenient way of giving a more balanced exposure across the portfolio. Okay, thank you, David. And see this week's Portfolio Clinic for David's full appraisal of the reader's situation.
That brings us to the end of today's podcast, so it just remains to thank Kate Bealey and Emma Adjumang at Investors Chronicle and David Little, Chief Executive of Ipso Facto Investor. You can read more on what's driving markets and funds, consistent underperformers and how to maximise your portfolio's income in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.